listening to The Fret Files, the Guitar Workshop Podcast with Eric Daw. Send in your question or comment. To participate in the show, you can text or call 757-774-8482. Or to email the show, you can go to my website, ericdaw.com. That's E-R-I-C-D-A-W.com. Click the contact link and send your question or comment there. We'll use it as part of the show. Yes, indeed. Welcome to the show. It's the Fret Files Podcast, the Guitar Tech Podcast. My name is Eric Da. I'm a longtime guitar builder and repairman, and I have no co-host today. Normally, my co-host Nat is here with me to read questions uh, submitted from the listening audience, and then I'll answer them. But uh, I'm going to read my own questions today, questions you've submitted. Maybe you. Um... What's on my bench lately? Well, I'll tell you what. I was I was sick last week, for one thing. And uh, the last time I was sick, the last time before this, I laid on the couch and watched the um the Beatles Get Back documentary, which is like 6 or 7 hours of them just kind of jamming. It's the it's the strangest documentary. You really have to be a Beatles fan to sit through it, and I am, you know, admittedly. So anyhow, I, uh, again, watched this silly Beatles Get Back documentary. I went on and subscribed to Disney Plus all over again just so I could watch this documentary. But uh, you watch it, as a Beatles fan, I watch it and I just, I, I wish to God that that someone was in charge, you know? They're just, they're like adrift. They're just adrift. Brian Epstein is dead, their their longtime, you know, manager. Um, and they're just like trying to run their own business affairs and trying to run their own trying to direct their own uh uh musical uh affairs. And it's just crazy. Like what what the documentary starts out as is them rehearsing for a and 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 coming up with new material and rehearsing for a TV special, right? In a in a studio called Twickenham Studios, which and it never happens. And they have to change plans like eight times throughout the documentary because they're they're non-committal. They instead of writing new songs, they sit around and jam on old Elvis songs and and joke around and eat sandwiches and take jabs at each other and then like one day George quits and then another day, you know, Ringo quits or whatever. It's just, it's just crazy. You just watch it and you're like, you guys are the Beatles. <laughs> Get it together, man. It's so frustrating. It's so frustrating. And then miraculously, by the end of it, they've written six or eight killer songs and they, out of just desperation for not having a plan and not knowing what to do, they just go up on the roof of 
of their Apple um, studios, their Apple building, they just go up on the roof and do a concert. And that's why that's that's why the rooftop concert happened is because they just didn't know what else to do because they made all these plans and then couldn't follow through with them. And nobody like nobody takes charge. And Paul tries to. God bless him. Paul actually tries to. Anyway, my point is. I'm watching John play this casino. He's got an Epiphone casino. And it's a cool guitar. I've always liked Epiphones. Uh, the You know, the old ones, right? Not Epiphones as we know them now. Although those are fine. But, you know, American-made Epiphones back in the 60s, 50s. Uh, it's a cool guitar. It's like a Gibson 330. It's like a, it, it's a you know, like a 335, but... It's that shape, but it has P90s, so it's the Epiphone version of a of a 330, I guess. The Epiphone Casino. Very cool guitar. And they got them, I don't know, in the mid-60s, and they played them on, you know, on stage. You can see footage with them. And they're sunburst. Well, by the time they get to 68, 69, something like that, they, uh, both John and George strip the finishes off of these Epiphone casinos. And I started thinking about that, and I started, you know, because it's something that, like, as a Beatles fan, I've always known that they stripped the finishes off of those, but as a guitar tech, it kind of horrifies me. Like, did they just strip it down to bare wood? Because that's probably not a good idea. Did they just like take razor blades and scrape the finish off or did they sand it off or what? I mean, I'm trying to imagine like John and George like high as a kite sitting in a kitchen with a razor blade, you know, like just goofing off and scraping the paint off of anyway. Anyway, they're Beatles. I mean, you can't, you can't hurt the value of, of their guitars, right? If you and I strip the finish off of, off a 60s Epiphone Casino, then it it becomes worth half of what it used to be. If John Lennon strips the finish off of his casino, it's still worth, you know, $1.2 million or whatever. It's interesting. But uh, so I started thinking about that, and I wanted to research about it, so I got out this Beatles Gear book. Have you ever seen this? This uh, Beatles Gear by Andy Babuick. Babuick? Babuick? I don't know. All the Fab Four's instruments from stage to studio. It's about all the guitars and basses and drums and keyboards and everything. I think it even goes into microphones and different things in this book. Very cool book, like big coffee table style book. So I look it up, and sure enough, here it is. Lennon and Harrison sanded down their Epiphone casinos. Harrison said that they once they'd removed the finish, they became much better guitars. I think that works on a lot of guitars, he explained. If you take the paint and varnish off and get to the bare wood, it seems to sort of breathe. A recent examination of Lennon's Gibson J160E and Epiphone Casino shows that the guitars were professionally sanded down to the wood and finished with a very thin, dull, unpolished protective coat. So, according to this book, they were professionally sanded down and then a very thin finish was applied, which is kind of reassuring, <laughs> you know, because I was imagining them as bare wood, and, and I didn't like that thought. 
right? As a as a guitar tech, uh, that was bothering me. That's just not a good idea. Uh, anyhow, it goes on. Uh, closer examination of the inside sound hole of the J160E reveals remnants of the blue paint applied during the guitar psychedelic period. Yeah, whatever. We don't care about that. Um, so I just thought this was interesting, and then I've always heard them say... I'm, I, I remember reading in interviews or whatever that they thought that the guitars sounded better once they stripped the finish, and I thought, was that just in their minds? Because that doesn't seem... Like, really? Like, that comes through the amp. You can really hear it? I doubt it. What do you think? Have you ever stripped the finish off a guitar and thought it sounded better afterward? Now, don't go and do it. I'm not <laughs> I'm not recommending anyone strip the finish. In fact, please don't. Strip the finish off your guitar. But if you have, did you find that it sounded differently afterward? I don't know. This I'm skeptical. Anyhow, then I'm listening to a podcast. It's called Looking Through the Glass Onion. It's a Beatles song podcast where they go through... Uh, they Each episode is a different song. And they kind of pick apart a Beatles song. So I'm listening to this uh, episode about the song Revolution, and they talk about the stripped-down casino. Just right when I'm thinking about it, then this comes up. I wanted to play a clip. Anyway, here we go. Uh, John is on that casino, which is stripped down for the first time. Yeah. which I thought was kind of cool when he played it live on that 66 tour. It was still, you know, still had the lacquer on it. So it's stripped down. Now talk about what that does. I think that's cool. Cause you play it stripped down and I play the one with the lacquer on it. What did it do? For, it warmed the tone a little bit, right? Now I want to say these guys actually are in kind of a Beatles band called yesterday and today. And they, they have like authentic instruments and stuff. And they are talking about their Epiphone casinos, and they've they st- stripped the finish off of one. <laughs> so I wanted to hear what what they have to say about it. And you stripped it down. Yeah, I mean that you know it, it's. Uh, <clears throat> I think both of them said you know it it allows the guitar to breathe a little bit more. Um, yeah, and and I'm lucky. I mean, both of us are because we play with in ears and we play right. through you know, fractal modeler. So we don't have, we don't have amps that are sitting behind us. These guitars are so prone to feedback that. So they, tough to play on amps. Yeah. They'd yeah. be tough to, to deal with. So, um, yeah, but, uh, yeah, it, it probably makes it a little livelier, uh, sounding, yeah. you know, um, that's interesting. So they, th- they think it makes it, makes it sound a little livelier, which I thought was interesting. Anyhow, I didn't get permission to play that, but it's, but uh, I'm sure they won't mind. You should listen to that sh- that podcast if you're a Beatles fan. It's called "Looking Through the Glass Onion" uh, with your hosts Billy McWiggin and Jay Hansen, and uh, they're really great hosts. And it's a very they're really super knowledgeable guys, and they actually play these songs so they can really speak with authority about you know chord structure and and difficulty of playing certain riffs. It's really an interesting, as a musician and as a Beatles fan, it's really an interesting podcast. So if you're a Beatles fan, check that out, Looking Through the Glass Onion. Uh, but that that's that rabbit hole. I've just been thinking about those Epiphone casinos and how they strip the finish off 
and how that makes me cringe and how I'm dubious that it changed the tone. I really am. I really don't think it changed the tone. That's my opinion. What's yours? Anyhow, we have a few calls to take, so uh, let's do that, shall we? Hey, Eric, this is Rhett from Rhett Fret. Hope you and Nat are doing just fine. Um, I had a question for you about a level crown, I guess, methods for level crown and polish jobs. So what I have done previously um, is I level the whole fretboard using the truss rod and a notch straight edge, and then I will gently level every fret, you know, mark the tops of the of the frets with a Sharpie, until they're all level and recrown and polish them. Um, leave a little bit of roll off from like little fret 19 on, probably more like 17 on. Um, but I also saw these uh, understring levelers from Stumac where you actually level your fretboard up to tension or you level the frets up to tension. And I was wondering what you thought of each method and which you prefer and why. I just bought one of those understring levelers, just a knockoff one, not from Stumac, don't tell them. And um, I, tr- I tried it on one of my own guitars and I actually liked it um, because you're not taking off too much material. But I don't know how accurate it is. I don't have a pleck or anything to measure the exact height. But anyways, I just wanted to kind of hear your method and your opinion on, on both of them. Um, I know there's like the Erlewine neck jig as well where you can simulate string tension. Um, I don't have the scratch for that. So, yeah, I'm asking about those two methods, I guess. But anyway, take care of yourself. I hope if I can come to Idaho, we can get tacos together and talk about Norm. Okay, bye. Yeah. Bye, Rhett. Yes, if you come to Idaho, please hit me up and and uh, we'll eat tacos. And that actually, look... If you listen to the show and you're not a murderer, that's a good qual that's that's a very important qualification. If you're not going to murder me. If you listen to the show and you're not going to murder me and you're in Idaho, yeah, send me an email and say, Hey, let's get tacos. Uh but especially Rhett, because Rhett and I go way back and he's he's from Idaho. Uh I've never Listen, I'm pretty traditional. So, I don't know about understring levelers. I just had to Google this. I... So, you leave the strings on. <laughs> you leave the strings on. And then this little doodad, this this doohickey, levels the frets. Oh. I just don't like this. I don't like this at all. I guess, to, like, to me, it's it just seems like... Like it's lazy. Uh, but I get, I, I get that that's not the point. The point is that we want... We want the neck to be under string tension so that that's the best way to simulate string tension is with actual string tension, I guess, right? But for me, uh, I'm pre- I'm pretty used to leveling frets without strings on. 
And I don't mess around with neck jigs either. Frankly, it's not very hard by turning the truss rod to just get the neck as straight as possible and then level the frets. That's what you want to do, right? Now, this isn't... I don't know. People go through all kinds of gymnastics to say, we need to, we have to simulate string tension. Well, okay. It, it's really not hard on most guitars. You just turn the truss rod. Um, and you, what you want is this neck as straight as possible, and then you level it from there. So that's my opinion. I am going to stick to the methods I have. I don't, I don't want an under, under string. Man, I'm looking at the picture of it. It's insane. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not into it. That's me. But I'm, I'm a traditionalist, like I said, so, uh, take that with a grain of salt. If, if you like it and you think it's great or you want to use the neck jig, go for it. Be my guest. Hey, Eric, this is Mike in Chicago calling. Um, got a couple things for you here today. First, the book is great. Ah, um, thank you. In many ways. And I know you've mentioned that you intended it to be a good bench reference, and you succeeded because the size of it is perfect. <laughs> Keeping it on the workbench and uh, having those diagrams handy is um, is really useful. I have other books uh, that have schematics and diagrams in them, but they're large and cumbersome, and the book is like just the right size to kind of keep there and keep it handy. So um, great work on that. Um, so I've got two questions for you. Um, one, I kind of need like a little bit of a beginner's corner refresher on polishing frets and i don't even necessarily mean polishing them after dressing them i just kind of mean cleaning and shining them during a routine string change um i i have you know lots of different tools and i have those little metal fret shields and i used to use steel wool and do that but i've gotten away from doing that um thanks to your admonishment and others as well because um, you don't want those those steel wool um, pieces floating around uh, the, the pickups or anything like that. So what do I use? How do I get those frets clean and shiny? Um, you know, just just to kind of spruce up the guitar. If I oil the neck, oil the fretboard um, while the strings are off, and just kind of want to get it get it tuned up, um, or not tuned up, but get it get it clean and shiny. How do I do that? And then the last question is, um, how do you keep your bench organized when you are working on multiple simultaneous projects. Uh, mm. If you've got a couple different guitars happening, and let's say you've got the pickguard screws or the you know some kind of tuner, tuner bushings or something for one guitar, and you're not ready to install them, but you've got to work on something else, what do you do? Do you have Ziploc bags around that are labeled, or do you have, I don't know, little bins of parts that you move parts in and out of as you're working on instruments. I just, I'm kind of having a hard time keeping myself organized at my bench. Um, so, uh, would, would appreciate some guidance on that. So, all right, love the podcast. Thanks very much. Take care, guys. Bye. Right on, man. Thanks. Yeah. As far as staying organized, look, it's a challenge, <clears throat> you know, and, uh, I've done a lot of things over the years. One thing I've got is I, I bought, I have an ice cube tray and I cut it in half. And, uh, man, it's the perfect little, you know, bin, storage bin for pickguard screws and tuner ferrules and whatever else, little parts. And then if you have to move the project, you aside to work on something else. It's all there and organized and you can neatly move it aside. I also have 
just a ton of kind of disposable uh, uh, Tupperware containers, right? You get these little snack pack containers at the grocery store that you can wash a few times, and they're not really built to last, right? They're just kind of flimsy, but they're kind of disposable, but you can use them half a dozen times. I have a bunch of those around to stick parts in and pickups and tuners and parts and screws. So uh, the other thing that's cool to do, if you have the room, is to have a few benches going. So I, I kind of have two main workbenches and then a third bench that is like kind of a messy bench where I can where I can do sanding and routing. And it has a built-in uh, dust collection deal going on. So, uh, and then I've got kind of a fourth bench where I can set a guitar aside, and there's no tools or anything. It's just kind of a place where I can set a guitar uh, in, my, in the back room. So I've got kind of four or five different spots where I can stick... A project, and then whichever main one I'm working on, I can put on the main bench there. Um, they also sell uh, another handy thing that I've used over the years is mechanics use these. It's a little magnetic. Uh, it looks like an ashtray, but it's magnetic, and so you can stick screws in there, and they don't go anywhere. They just stick right in there. The problem with that is, is it will accumulate everything. So, like, I think I have one on my bench right now that has about two years worth of, you know, random spare parts and razor blades. And, you know, so you can't really go digging around in there. It's kind of scary, right? Uh, you know, little bits of string ends stick to it because it's magnetic, you know. So if you can keep it clean, that's a good idea. Again, ice cube trays, that's that's a good organization deal. Yeah. It just takes, it just takes a little bit of forethought and planning and organization. And, uh, above all, it takes space. It's hard to be organized when you don't have room to be organized. So that's something to think about. What was your other question? Oh, polishing frets. Yes. I used to use, years ago, I used to use steel wool, too. Um, gosh, I haven't for over 10 years. Uh, I mean, I'll, I have it, and I'll use it occasionally on a guitar, but I won't use it at my bench. What I'll usually do is take it outside, and uh, if I need to polish something with steel wool, I'll take it outside. Uh, to polish frets, what I use, and I've, I've been doing this for a long time. It's my favorite method. Uh, those little metal fret shields that you mentioned are great. You can get those from Stuart McDonald or a lot of different suppliers. But that's a little shield that sits around the fret to protect the fingerboard. You can also use masking tape, but you want to protect the fingerboard. Um, after sanding, right? So if we're doing a fret level, we're going to sand those frets. Uh, and if they're really tarnished or really dirty you can just you can sand them but you know 600 800 grit a thousand grit and then polish and what i do to polish them 
is I have a Dremel with a flex shaft, right? A flex shaft is like a three or four foot long shaft that is flexible. So my Dremel hangs up on a hook um, at the back of my bench, and then the, so the flex shaft can come forward to my bench, right? And then I'll use little tiny polishing wheels. They're just about the size of a penny, I don't know, or uh, they're just a little round, just a, a tiny little buffing wheel. Just like a giant buffing wheel that you would use to buff the finish out, except it's just tiny. It's just little, you know? And it it, it hooks up to a Dremel, and then I plug my Dremel in to a sewing machine pedal, and that sits under my bench, so it's like a gas pedal. I can, I can control the speed, and I can I just leave it on all the time. But it doesn't. It's not running until you put your foot on the pedal and press down. So you press down on the pedal, and the polishing wheel starts spinning. I've got a little block of polishing compound on my bed, bench that sits there all the time. I'll use the fret uh, shield. I'll use the Dremel with a flex shaft and a polishing wheel, and I'll just polish each fret. And then after I'm done, and it does a great job. I mean, mirror finish. It really does a great job. And then after I'm done, I will take and, uh, with a rag, just run along the fret to get kind of the black jeweler's rouge that happens, you know, so that your fingers don't turn black when you go to play the guitar. But that's what I use. I use a tiny polishing wheels on a Dremel. And if you want to get fancy, get a flex shaft and get an old school sewing machine uh, pedal that is used to run a sewing machine motor so that you can control it with your foot. That's what I do. And I know I've talked about that on the show before, but that's the hot ticket, man. All right, I'm going to take a little break and uh, be right back. After these messages, we'll be right back. We've talked a lot about neck straightening irons on the show, and people write to me and they say, Eric, where can I get one? Well, until now, I didn't have anywhere to send people because nobody makes them anymore, except for my buddy Rick at playersgearmusic.com. You can go to Players Gear Music, you can order a neck straightening iron, some people call it a neck press or a neck heater. It is an invaluable tool in my shop. I use it all the time. I'd be lost without one of these. I I love having a neck straightening iron, and Rick is making a really, really stout industrial. It, I I think it I think it's the best one that I've used, and I've I've used a lot. I've used uh, the commercially available ones that they used to sell in the seventies and eighties, but they don't sell them anymore. Well, now you can get one from playersgearmusic.com they're $7.49 I know that seems like a lot it's it's a tool I tell you what it's going to pay for itself a hundred times over if you go to playersgearmusic.com scroll down on the main page scroll 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 down to where it says fan of the fret files podcast you click that that adds one to your cart and it's 50 bucks off. So instead of 749, it's 699. 699, free shipping, and it's yours. A neck straightening iron, 
playersgearmusic.com has them, and you need one. I'm telling you. So go to playersgearmusic.com and check it out, and don't forget to tell Rick that the Fret Files podcast sent you. Hey guys, I'm Cody with Apex Coffee Roasters. I wanted to give a few pointers on how to brew the best possible coffee at home. First thing you're going to need to make great coffee at home is great coffee. So whether you have Apex or one of the other mini delicious roasters out there, having great coffee is definitely step number one. Step two is having a a good consistent grind um, through that coffee where each particle is relatively the same size. It's going to be really important to your overall extraction. Once the coffee is ground, uh, it starts to lose its aromatics and its quality fairly quickly. So grinding immediately before brewing is the most ideal situation. Tip number three is 99-ish percent of your coffee, what you're going to be consuming is made up of the water that you brewed with. So having high quality brew water is definitely essential to the overall taste of that coffee. If you have water filtration, that is going to be significantly better than just using straight tap water. If you follow the first few guidelines of using high quality coffee, making sure your grind is correct, using good brewing water, those are all going to ensure that just a basic coffee maker um, is actually going to give you a really good tasting cup. Okay, guys, I hope you enjoyed this. Uh, Order coffee from apexcoffeeroasters.com, and we'll see you soon. Thanks. That's good coffee. If you order Apex Coffee online, make sure to use our promo code PINUP. That's P-I-N-U-P. That way they know that the Fret Files podcast sent you, and you get 10% off. And we're back. This is a a review that was sent in on my on my book, and I have to share it with you because, uh, you know, I have to. Here we go. Solid sound book. What an outstanding reference written with Eric's characteristic understated expertise. I love that. I, I didn't know I had that. That's great. Thank you. He continues. Many complete wiring diagrams uh, for the many single-coil pickup guitars, prefaced by a thoughtful opening and finished with blank diagrams and pickup winding charts for notes on your own designs. Nothing more, nothing less. It's most useful if you already have an understanding of fundamental electronics, as there are little to no explanations of the science of what's happening, which I don't have, and it doesn't bother me at all. I suspect most people will do as I did and paint by number and see what comes out. I used the modified Jazz Master diagram, going a bit rogue, and used 50, 50s wiring for the master tone circuit. Why? Because I could. Next time I change strings, I'll probably swap and try Eric's complete design. The JM is my only guitar right now, or I'd likely have cracked them all open and tried one of those mods already. The change is hard to miss. I brought my guitar into Kent at Russo Music here in Philly, who told me I needed this book, and while it hurt, he was right. The original JM Rhythm Circuit isn't nearly as useful as it could be, so thank you, Eric, and thank you, Kent, for sharing such a fantastic resource and growing my knowledge base as a guitarist. Fantastic book, Eric. Thank you. Love the podcast, too. Most useful book I may have ever purchased. That's from Daniel W. Thanks, Daniel. Yeah, there's a lot of basic... um, The basics are covered in this book, but really my point in sharing this book was I had a whole bunch of wiring diagrams that I'd never seen anywhere else and that I knew people would dig, that people would find useful. So, 
I compiled them all. I think there's 23 different schematics in this book. You can check it out at solidsoundbook.com if you haven't already. Alrighty, moving right along. Hi, Eric and Nat. Nat's not here, man. Sorry. Hi, Eric. I've recently bought a telly, and my hand quite often hits the switch, knocking it back to the bridge pickup. Oftentimes I'll strum on the neck pickup. Any thoughts as to a solution? Hmm. I don't I don't know. This this is a question that I've that I get from time to time and there's a very there's variations of this question, right? One is Eric, when I play my guitar I accidentally uh hit the volume knob and slowly turn myself down. Or Eric, uh when I strum my Les Paul I accidentally hit the switch. And I just I don't know. It's one of those questions that perplexes me because perhaps I'm just of a different mind. I don't know. You just have to be aware. (laughs) How can I say this politely? You need to be aware of your uh, surroundings, right? So if you're hitting the switch, maybe it's time to adjust your technique a little bit so that you don't. I don't know how, what else to, I don't know what other advice to give you. You're, you're not going to move the switch and you're not going to super glue it into place, right? I mean, what else can I say? Uh, if your hand hits the switch, I don't know. This is like, this is like, Eric, when I drive my car, oftentimes I go to step on the gas, but Instead, I put my foot on the brake. I don't know. It's it, See, now I'm just being rude. And I try not to do that. Here's the deal. If you're hitting the switch with your hand, you've already established your first, uh, the first step in the right direction, and that is realizing that you have a problem. This, this is the problem. We've, we've recognized the problem. My hand hits the switch. Now, let's come up with a solution. Can we move the switch? No. Can you strum differently? Yes. That's where I'm at with this question. I guess there's one other... I guess there's one other thing you could do here. In fact, now that I think of it, I feel kind of silly. A lot of people flip the plate. So, if you flip, if if you unscrew the plate and flip it the other direction then um, what would happen is then your tone knob would be closest to you, and then in the middle is the volume knob, and then the switch would be farthest from you. You could do that. A lot of people go a step further. They'll flip the plate, and they'll flip the knobs, so the volume knob is closest to you, the tone knob is in the middle, and then the switch is farthest from you. On a telly, you could do that. You could do that, but now you're going to hit the knob, and I don't know. I still I think my first suggestion is the best suggestion. Just adjust your playing style so you don't hit the switch and just be aware of the location of the switch. But if it drives you crazy, that's something a lot of players do. If I flipped the plate on my Telecaster, I would go bananas. 
that would drive me bonkers. I I love exactly how a Telecaster is laid out. The switch is in exactly the right position in my mind, so I never have a problem with it. Maybe that's why I'm being such a flippant dickhead about your question, and my apologies for being so. I don't know. It's just one of those questions that I get from time to time that that honestly is a little bit perplexing. Hi, Eric. Great podcast. It's worth every penny. Whoa, is that a... Is that a... Is that a dig? Is, is that an insult? It's free. It's a free podcast. And listen, I'll tell you this as well. Uh, a lot of times it's really worth what you pay for it, right? I mean, the advice I just gave this guy about hitting his switch, you know, that was free advice. So at least he's not out anything. All right. Hi, Eric. Great podcast. It's worth every penny. What do you think about fancy guitar strings? I've tried some of the more expensive boutique strings, and frankly, I liked them, but I don't know if I like them twice as much as the garden variety strings that cost half what they charge for the fancy ones. Perhaps when it's a good time to splurge, say for a special gig or a recording session, I will opt for the fancy Stringjoy handmade boutique guitar strings and play good old Ernie Ball the rest of the time. What's your opinion? Thanks, Jerry in New Mexico. Well, Jerry, uh, I know I've talked, I think it's been a long time, but I've talked about boutique strings in the past. I don't like them. I think they're inconsistent. I think they're prone to intonation problems. And uh, for my money, I want, I don't want boutique handmade strings. I want good old machine-made, tightly controlled you know, computer-controlled. I mean, this is something where accuracy counts. There are times when accuracy counts, right? We want a machine. We want a very accurate uh, way of making strings. And I don't know. I I don't think people are hand-winding strings. I don't know. I don't know how the boutique guys are doing it or what they're doing. But I can tell you this. Handmade boutique cupcakes sound great, right? Handmade boutique guitar strings sounds like a terrible idea. I want a factory that's cranking them out a billion at a time. So I go with the name brand stuff. It's like the Coke and Pepsi, you know, of guitar strings. I use Diodario. That's what I use. They're consistent. They're affordable. They make every kind of string you could possibly need. And, you know, so you have to, so you do all your ordering at the same, at the same spot. They give me a discount because I order, you know, hundreds of strings at at a time. And they're consistent. They're consistent. Anytime I use uh, whatever I won't name names, but people will oftentimes supply the strings, right? So they'll say, here's my guitar, set it up with these. And you set it up, and you know, because when you've finished with it, the saddles are all in weird spots. Like, this doesn't doesn't intonate right. This isn't intonating correctly, like like a guitar with good old-fashioned computer robot, you know, controlled hex core strings 
So stay away. This is my this is my advice. This is my opinion. Stay away from boutique strings. Stay away from round core strings. Use hex core strings. Uh, I use flat wounds on a lot of guitars. I love flat wounds. I think they have a more pure note, a more pure pitch. They have less warble to them. Uh, I think that they have a more pure sound. So, um, so yeah, I'm all about not boutique strings. That's me. That's my opinion. Moving right along. Hello! The tone cap in my telly is a .022 orange drop. It's fine, but I want a larger effect. If I swap out my tone capacitor for a larger value, say a .05 or a .047, and use a linear taper pot, will I be able to do tone swells more like what a wah-wah pedal is capable of? Should I use a different pot to accommodate this, like, say, a 1 meg pot? I would like a more dramatic tone swell from 0 to 10. I would love your advice. Thanks for the show. Grant in Seattle. Yeah, if you... So, you've got a .022 cap now. If you use a larger value, like a .05 or a .047, yes, you will have a larger, a more dramatic sweep from 0 to 10. Yes. Will it sound like a wah-wah? No. A wah-wah, like if you take off the uh, feet of a wah-wah and look inside there, uh, you'll see that it's just full of all kinds of resistors and capacitors and a battery. And it's not just a passive tone circuit. It's an active tone circuit. So it has a much different effect, a much more dramatic effect. The only way to get a wah-wah effect is to, is to use an active tone circuit like a wah-wah. You're just not going to get it from a, a passive guitar tone knob, whether you sw- swap out the pot or swap out the cap. If you, It will give you a more dramatic effect to go with a larger value, but if you're going for a wah-wah effect, you'll be disappointed because it's that's just not going to get you there. But it will be more dramatic. So if you want to give it a try, you can, but... Uh, that's my advice. Anyhow, that does it for the show. A nice short, sweet February. A short episode for a short month. A short February edition of the Fret Files podcast. Thanks for tuning in. We'll talk to you next time. If you want to submit a question, please do. Go to my website, ericdaw.com. Click the contact link and send in your question or comment there. I'll use it as part of the show. The other way to do it is call or text 757-774-8482. Thank you. Talk to you next time, guys. Bye.